Good morning, family of God. Can we bow our heads one more time? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there with them. So Jesus is with us right now. And I just want to be still in the presence of Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to give us hearts and minds that are attentive to his presence with us before we dig into our text. So please bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being a good and gracious and loving Father. Thank you that you're always with us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Lord, thank you for being our Master, Teacher, Savior, and Friend. And that you're here with us now. Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of life, we thank you for your presence with us. ask that you would... Open our minds to your truth, touch our hearts with your love, teach us wisdom, heal our bodies, refresh our spirits this morning. Lord, where we have sinned, we pray that you would forgive us. Where we are hurting, we pray that you would heal us. Where we're in need of guidance and instruction, we pray that you would teach us. Where we're weak, we pray that you would make us strong. Where we're confused, we pray that you would give us clarity. Where we're doubting, we pray that you would give us faith. Where we're in error, we pray that you would correct us. And our strong, deep desire is to be in your presence always. So I pray that your spirit would be mightily at work during these times that we have to reflect on your word. We pray these things for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 8, verse 1, is a summary statement about the ministry of Jesus. If you think back over the last few months of studying the Gospel of Luke together, Luke has been telling us lots of stories about individual encounters Jesus had with people. Individual interactions. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He teaches the disciples of John the Baptist. He goes to have dinner at a Pharisee's house. He interacts with An unnamed woman who comes and anoints his feet. He heals many sick people. We've also heard of his teaching. There's a lot that has been going on. And here in these three short verses, Luke is zooming out, as it were, to help us understand what is it all about. What is what do all these little stories have in common? And the way he summarizes this ministry of Jesus is by saying, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he's been doing, and now he launches out on a new phase of his mission, and that's what he's going to continue doing. His ministry is about proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So we need to... Pause and ponder those words, meditate on those words. What do they have to teach us about all this activity of Jesus? First, I want you to think about those words, good news. Everybody say, good news. You could also translate this gospel. 
The word gospel just means good news. I want us to understand that the primary message of Jesus is not a new moral or ethical system. Jesus is not primarily concerned with giving us instructions for how to relate to one another. Now, church family, over the last few months, has Jesus given us some instructions about how to relate to people? Yes, he has. He's given us commandments about how to love people, how to treat people. But Luke is making it clear, the main thing Jesus is doing is not giving us a new ethical system. His main thing is also not to explain eternal principles. His main thing is not to teach us a new set of spiritual disciplines or to teach us a new rhythm of spiritual habits. The main thing Jesus is doing is proclaiming good news. Everybody say, good news. That means he's telling us an event has happened and is happening, which changes everything and which should give us joy. Good news means an event has occurred and is occurring. And the event is God coming near to save his people, to liberate his people, to heal his people, to forgive his people. The event is God's victory over evil and darkness. The good news is about something God has done and God is doing. It's not about something that we're supposed to do. Now, as we've said, Jesus does tell us some stuff that we should do. And all his commandments are good, aren't they? The commandments of Jesus are good. But everything he's teaching us about how we relate to people and how we pray and all that is really about a response to a proclamation about something God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. It's about good news. This is important because we live in a culture that is obsessed with self-help. There's a lot of self-help books that are New York Times bestsellers. And I'm not going to rag on this self-help industry necessarily. There's a lot of good wisdom principles there. But it's easy for us to think if we just tweak a few things in terms of how we structure our life or if we just get the right practices of meditation in or get the right rhythms in place or we learn the right principles of how to relate to people or whatever, that we can solve our problems. But that's a pretty shallow understanding of our problems, isn't it? The reality is all of us have much deeper problems than that, like death. There's nothing on the self-help aisle that can solve the problem of death, is there? There's nothing that can solve the problem of sin and evil and alienation from God and alienation from ourselves. Only God can solve that problem. And all the changes that Jesus has been talking about happening in the lives of his disciples are the fruit of them coming to understand the good news of what God has done. So everybody say, good news. But the text doesn't just say he was proclaiming and bringing good news. It says, good news about the kingdom of God. So now everybody say, kingdom. The good news about the kingdom of God. Here's what that means. God has always been king. 
I mean, go read the Psalms and they'll say over and over, the Lord reigns. He's clothed in majesty. He's enthroned in righteousness and justice. So God has always been the king. But the news is that God is coming near now to assert his authority in the world in a new way to set things right. God is coming near now in a new way to establish his kingdom on earth. For years through his prophets, God has been promising that he's going to bring his kingdom, bring his authority to the world in a new way. And he's been promising that he's going to establish his kingdom through a human king who will be a faithful servant of the Lord, empowered by God to come with God's wisdom and righteousness and justice to overthrow all the forces of evil, to reverse the curse of death, to to save us from our sins and to draw the nations to God. And now Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which means the time is now the king has come and we know that his name is Jesus. So everybody say Jesus is the king. He has come to establish God's kingdom, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And yet he is coming, establishing the kingdom of God in ways that were very surprising for all the people of God who had been reading those Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled all God's promises, but not in the ways people were expecting. Jesus is surprising in many ways. We could just mention a few. First of all, he comes establishing God's power and authority on the earth, not by the power of the sword, but by the power of the cross. Many of his contemporaries were expecting that when Messiah comes, when Christ the king comes, he'll come as a great military political ruler. And through the power of the sword, he's going to overcome evil. But the problem of evil is too deep to be solved by a sword, isn't it? So instead of flexing his power in a way that looks like power to the world, Jesus comes and lives a lifestyle of humility and service culminating in the cross. The cross is where evil is defeated because the cross is where Jesus takes on himself all of the weight of all of our sin and all of our consequences so that we can be rescued from sin and death and reconciled to God. The kingdom comes not by the sword, but by the cross. Also, Jesus is surprising because he comes bringing God's authority, God's reign, God's kingdom to the earth, not all at once with a fast surge of conquest, but more like yeast working through a batch of dough. More like seed taking root in the hearts of human beings, growing deep roots below the surface and then bearing fruit over time. Almost all of the teaching of Jesus is really trying to help people understand the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom comes not through the cross. I mean, sorry, not through the sword, but through the cross. The kingdom comes not through a fast surge of conquest. The kingdom is like yeast through a batch of dough. The kingdom is like a little tiny mustard seed that gets planted in a human heart, grows deep roots beneath the surface, over time grows up, grows branches, produces fruit. Insofar as Jesus does give us spiritual and ethical principles for living, he's describing the fruit of the kingdom of God. 
But you can't just crank out this fruit by your own willpower. Has anybody ever tried to just like crank out by your willpower joy? Like just be joyful. Did that work? You ever tried to crank out love? Somebody that really gets on your nerves. You're like, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. And it didn't work. You can't just crank it out. The fruit comes when the seed of the good news of the kingdom, the seed of the word of Jesus Christ, comes to dwell deeply in our hearts. And that good news is not a bunch of moral exhortations about how we live, how we're supposed to live. It's the proclamation that in Jesus Christ, God has come near to rescue people like us who couldn't rescue ourselves. Or to say this a different way. The fruit of the kingdom is born in our lives when we are like branches connected to the vine, which is the king, King Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. If you want to know what is the kingdom of God, I mean, one simple way to talk about it is it's the presence of Jesus. Jesus is the king. It's his power. It's his presence. It's his authority coming to heal the world. He's going around through all the towns and villages, through his words, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and by his actions, bearing witness to the fact that the kingdom has come near. The kingdom coming near means the power of Satan is broken. Demons are being cast out. The kingdom coming near means the power of death is broken. The power of sickness is broken. He's raising people from the dead. The kingdom coming near means that people who hated each other are learning to love each other in his band of disciples. The kingdom coming near means that he keeps saying to people who come to him, your sins are forgiven. Through his words, he's proclaiming, explaining the good news of the kingdom. And through his life, he's demonstrating that the power of God is coming near to heal. But ultimately, it's all about the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God is Jesus coming near. And that leads us to the two little words, which are the words I want us to focus on today. Look at the end of verse one. It says, and the twelve were with him and also some women. And I want you to underline, circle, put a star by whatever you need to do. Those two little words with him. With him. This text is all about. With him, with Jesus. Everybody say, with him. Life is all about being with Jesus. What Jesus wants for us is to live life with him. Some of us struggle with that. We project on God. Our own psychological issues. And we think of God in a variety of ways. Probably a lot of us have a tendency to think of him as an angry taskmaster who gives us a bunch of commands and who's always disappointed with us for not fulfilling his commands. And we struggle sometimes with thoughts like, God, what do you want from me? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this and make a confession. I'm just going to hypothesize that probably everybody in here thinks and feels that way sometimes. And the answer to the question, what does God want from me? What does God want for me? Is 
He wants you to be with him. That's the answer. Life is about being with Jesus. And what Jesus wants is for us to live life with him. Also, we could say it like this. What we need is to live life with him. Life with Jesus is where joy is found. Life with Jesus is where healing is located. Life with Jesus is how we discover our dignity. Life with Jesus is where we find purpose. Life with Jesus is where we find the one love that can never fail and never disappoint. Friends, I will ask you to raise your hand on this one. Who in life is looking for love? Anybody want to be loved out there? Okay, now let's take another poll. Who has ever hurt, failed, or disappointed people that you love? Okay, anybody ever hurt, failed, and disappointed, been hurt, failed, or disappointed by people who love you? So this is all of us. We're all searching for love. And here is the only perfect love coming near to say, be with me. What is salvation? It means being liberated from the power of sin and darkness to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. The meaning of life and the meaning of the gospel is not just someday when we die, we don't have to get punished. We can go to a very nice place. The meaning of the gospel is we are freed from the tyranny of sin, self, our false self, death, evil, Satan, for the freedom of being with Jesus. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus. Listening to Jesus, obeying Jesus, learning from Jesus, pouring out our hearts to Jesus. It's our whole calling just to be with Jesus. We can be with Jesus precisely and only because he came to be with us. I don't want you to separate those two words with him from the other words we were talking about. The gospel of the kingdom. The message is not, obey all these commandments and then you can be with Jesus. The message is not, adopt all these spiritual practices and then you can be with Jesus. The message is, Jesus broke through sin, Satan, death, crossed the border between the infinite and the finite to come near to you to be with you. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus raised, rose from the grave to be with you. And if you just trust him by grace, you're with Jesus. If you came here today feeling far from God, here's all you got to do. Just believe that gospel. Just trust him. Say, forgive me and be near to me. And it is so. Right now, if you're thinking, I'm not worthy of your presence, but I want to be with you. Heal me. Forgive me. Draw me close. Then the word of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is it's done. He's close to you. You're with him. That's the meaning of all these stories we've been reading in Luke. He came near to us to be with us as our king, as our teacher, as our savior, our master, and our friend. 
It's also worth noting in this text who is with Jesus. Look with me again, starting halfway through verse 1. It says, And the twelve were with him, and also some women. And it goes on and names a few of these women and tells about their life circumstances. Uh, But then says in verse 3, And many others. There were a lot of women traveling with Jesus. So let's think about the twelve, and then let's think about the women that were with Jesus. Who are these twelve? Well, we've met some of them, and we're going to get to know more of them. People like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're probably the four most famous of these disciples. They were fishermen. Jesus calls them to leave their nets and follow him. And when he calls them, the, the promise was, follow me. In other words, be with me. I'm sorry, that's the, that's the call. Not the promise. That's the call. The promise is, I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, here's all the commands I want you to follow. He doesn't say... Here's all the spiritual disciplines you need to learn how to practice. He says, follow me. The call is to be with Jesus. And that call on their lives brings with it a promise. As you are with me, I will transform you. I will make you. I will remake you. And what I'm going to make you into is fishers of men, meaning you're going to become an instrument of healing and grace, an ambassador of the kingdom of God, so that through you, other people are going to know the healing love of God. And they left their nets and they followed him. And throughout the whole story of the Gospels, we have stories of them not being good at following Jesus and of Jesus loving them anyway. We have stories of them failing and of God's power and grace at work in their lives. And he's going to use them to turn the world upside down. And as we keep reading the story, go from Luke into Acts, they're they're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to keep making mistakes throughout the whole book of Acts. And yet there's going to be power and life flowing through them. And when other people see these guys and they think these guys are not impressive, they're unschooled, ordinary men, they're going to take note. They were with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. Who are the twelve? It's people like Matthew who sold out to the Romans and Simon who wanted to kill the Romans. Coming together to be with Jesus and in being with Jesus, learning to be with one another. The two are inseparable. It's people like Thomas. Poor Thomas, faithful Thomas, and yet we call him Doubting Thomas, don't we? I love the stories of Thomas because he's always... Skeptical, He's always struggling. And yet Jesus keeps loving him. Jesus keeps coming near to him. We can only be with Jesus because Jesus came near to be with us. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our doubts, he comes close. And he blesses. And early church traditions tell us that doubting Thomas came to be a man of such courageous faith that he traveled all the way to India and planted the first churches there. And told them about Jesus Christ. We could say more about the twelve, but really I want to talk about these women today. Luke goes out of his way to highlight the important roles that women have in the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about the whole gospel of Luke. Think about where we started. We started with Elizabeth. God has heard her cries. And makes her pregnant with John the Baptist. And she prophesies. She's the first one to call Jesus Lord. Before he's even born. We start with Mary. A role model of faithful discipleship and surrender to the will of God. We start with Anna the prophetess. And the great history of prophetesses from Israel. Like 
Miriam and Deborah, who comes proclaiming, recognizing Jesus while he's an infant and pointing everybody's attention to him. The salvation of the Lord has come near. All four of the Gospels tell us that the women were with Jesus at his crucifixion. And the women, including Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned in this passage, were the first witnesses of his resurrection. The women were with Jesus every stretch of the way. In this text, it tells us that they were traveling around with Jesus, and some of them were helping support his ministry financially. Now, understand, it was not unprecedented for women of means, women with significant financial resources, to become patrons that support a Jewish teacher of the time, but it was unprecedented for them to travel with him. That would have 100% for sure raised many eyebrows and caused many people to mutter, who, are, who is this teacher that has men and women traveling around with him together throughout Galilee from village to village? That was not normal. That was not done. Yet Jesus, he doesn't seem so much concerned about those cultural boundaries as he is concerned with loving these women. Jesus loves them. This is unique about Jesus as a historical figure. The text names several of them, Mary Magdalene, it names Joanna, it names Susanna. They were individuals that he cared about, but it also says many others because there were a lot of them. Luke, in this gospel, in, in a few chapters, a couple of chapters, is going to tell us one of the best with Jesus stories in the Bible. And he's going to put women at the center of it. I'm talking about Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. In a few weeks, we'll be back here to dig into this, chap- this little story with more detail. But I just want to read it in your hearing right now. Luke 10, 38. Some of you are familiar with the story. It says this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We'll talk more about this story in a few weeks, but I want you to notice a few things right now. One, Jesus loved Martha and Mary. They were his friends. He had a relationship with them. He came to be with them. Second, Martha is actually a good role model because she loves to serve Jesus. But Mary is here the role model. It's good for us to honor Jesus as our master, serve Jesus as our Lord. But what's better is a life that's centered around being with Jesus. And for all time, till Jesus returns, our role model of that is Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. Who knew to just sit at the feet of Jesus. That's the one good thing that can never be taken away. Hey, we all know that if we live for money, that can fail us, can't it? Anybody been failed by your money? If we live for our careers, that can disappoint us, can't it? 
If we try to get our ultimate value from any human relationship, that can disappoint us. But I also want you to understand, if we live for our ministry and what we'll do for Jesus, that can be really disappointing too. Do you know what's the one thing that can never be taken from you? Being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. I've told some of you the story about visiting some Christian friends in another country that fiercely persecutes Christians. And while I was staying in the home of one of them, one of the men who had been a very respected figure, a judge actually, in his country, um, was telling me about how he got, he was pretty bold making disciples in his community, and word got out and he was accused before the government and they took from him his job, took away from him his law degree, so he was no longer a judge. He was still unemployed when I met him, dealing with a lot of identity issues about not being able to provide for his family. And because of that, he had to move to a different city where his family wouldn't be persecuted. And it was a big city. He went from being in a medium-sized city where he was an influential leader to a big city in which no one knew him. So now he has nobody to disciple. His ministry, his evangelism has borne no fruit. He's just been struggling for months. And he opened to me in the Gospels where Jesus says... This is the work of God, to believe in him whom he has sent. And he looked me in my eyes in a moment that I don't plan to forget and said, Jesus has been teaching me that the whole work is to be with Jesus and to trust him. Everything else in life flows out of that. As I mentioned earlier, these same women mentioned in verses 2 and 3 are going to be with Jesus at the cross. They're going to be the first to be with him after the resurrection. The first witnesses. Think about how important that word witness is in the New Testament. The first witness of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. But I was especially struck during Holy Week this year on Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday when Jesus died for our sins and Easter when Jesus rose again. Because I was just going back and looking at the scriptures that talk about Holy Saturday, that horrible period of time when Jesus is dead and his body's in the tomb and his disciples all think, the one that we've loved, we've lost forever and we have no idea what's happening next except they're probably coming for us. And from the little clues that we can get about what happened on that day, it seems that the male disciples of Jesus were basically just hiding It seems like the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests who are very legalistic about the Sabbath, criticizing Jesus throughout the gospel narratives, are spending Holy Saturday breaking the Sabbath by frantically working to keep the body of Jesus in the tomb, which they will fail at, by the way. But listen to what these women were doing. Luke 23, verse 55. Only Luke tells us this little detail. It says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And it goes back, it says, they alone went and saw where his body was laid and then honored the law by resting on the Sabbath and preparing spices to honor the body of their dead Lord the next day. Except he was going to be alive when they went. The women knew how to be with Jesus. I want you to notice the two other facts that Luke mentions about these women and emphasizes in today's text. One... He healed them of of demons and various diseases. 
Why does Luke mention that here? I think, for one thing, it's just true. It's, it's a historical fact. But I think Luke is also pointing us back to the story that came at the end of chapter 7. Jared preached a great sermon to us last Sunday. If you weren't here, you should go listen to it on the podcast. But it was a story about a very self-righteous Pharisee who did not get Jesus and an unnamed sinful woman who many people think might have been Mary Magdalene who did get Jesus. And she was showing extravagant affection to Jesus, extravagant love, violating all sorts of cultural taboos by crying and wetting his feet with her hair and wiping uh, with her tears and, and wiping his feet with her hair. And she loved Jesus extravagantly. And when the Pharisee is criticizing, Jesus told a great parable. And the point was this. Whoever's been forgiven much, loves much. Whoever's been forgiven little, loves little. And we had a great little conversation at our community group last week about that phrase of Jesus. And one of the points we were talking about is this. The moral of that story is not, go be as bad as you can so then you can be forgiven and love Jesus. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is those of us who think we haven't been forgiven much tend to not love very much. But those of us who recognize the depths of our brokenness and need tend to be overwhelmed by the love of God in Jesus Christ in a way that compels us to be extravagant in our love for him. These women were women that were in dark places. They were suffering. They were sick. Some of them were experiencing torment from demons. And when Jesus came near, the kingdom of God came near with liberating, healing power. They experienced his grace, setting them free. As I think about this story and these people, I can't help thinking about the fact that I have not watched all the episodes of Chosen, but I feel like I have because all of y'all have told me so much about all the episodes of Chosen. Why does that, why does that show resonate with so many people? I think because Jesus is awesome. That's one of the reasons. But I think probably one of the other reasons is because it's helping us visualize these followers that were with Jesus as human beings like they really are depicted in the Gospels. And one of everybody's favorite lines was that moment from Mary Magdalene. Remember, it depicted her having the demon cast out. And when people were asking her questions about Jesus and she doesn't know how to answer, theology is still getting sorted out. But she said, this is what I know. I was one way and now I'm another. And Jesus made all the difference. Remember that line from The Chosen? I think that's what Luke is trying to get us to see right now. All of us were desperately broken. Some of us know it. All of us are desperately in need of grace. Some of us recognize that. Some of us try to hide it. The more aware we are of our brokenness, the better, because then the more sensitized we're going to be to the fact that Jesus came near to touch us and heal us in our brokenness. And that frees us to be extravagant in our love for him. Luke also mentions that some of these women provided for them out of their means. One of them has a husband who is a household manager from Herod, the same Herod that kills John the Baptist. And yet she's left the comfort of her home and brought whatever financial resources she has to support him. These women are gospel patrons. 
They're women of wealth, women, some of them are women of wealth and influence who are taking all the resources that they have and using it to fund Jesus and his ministry. And they're honored here. Luke honors them and God honors them. About half of the room in here is women. I haven't counted. But I think that's about right. And sisters, I just want to say to you, Jesus loves being with you. Jesus is with you. And he loves you loving to be with him. He loves you. Jesus sees you. Jesus hears you. He cares about you. And he has an important job for you. Throughout these gospel narratives, the male disciples don't usually respect the female disciples as well as Jesus does. That's just true. For example, they don't believe Mary Magdalene when she comes and says Jesus has risen from the dead. But Jesus respects them deeply. Jesus cares for them. Jesus gives them important roles like funding his ministry and being the first witnesses of the resurrection. He loves being with you. Brothers, also, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves being with you. He's less interested in what you can do for him than he is in you being with him. He loves you. He sees you. He hears you. He cares about you. He has an important job for you. And we should probably treat our sisters more like Jesus did. I'm almost done. The text here is a very simple invitation to us to be with Jesus. But as I was reflecting on this text this week and thinking, I'm so glad not only that Jesus is a savior and a master who came near to be with me, but he's a friend who came to be with me. I also just started feeling thankful to God for the women in my life who have spent time with Jesus in a way that has shown me his heart. One of the formative moments of my life was, I don't know, 30 years ago. I was a pretty young kid at this time and walked out, saw my mother reading her Bible and praying. And there were tears in her eyes. She was crying. And I love my mother, so I was concerned about her. What's the matter? Why are you sad? And she said, I'm crying because I was praying for you and your brother. Uh, it took me a long time. I was a Christian for a long time before I really understood that I could have a deep personal relationship with Jesus. And I don't want you to have to wait as long as I did to know that you can know him and have that relationship with him. And being a little kid, I was like, I already have a relationship with Jesus and ran off. (laughs) But God used that moment to awaken something in my heart. And I remember a few years later being in my room and seeing a little Bible there and opening it and remembering that conversation with my mom. And I was reading it, not for Sunday school, not because I wanted some answers, but just I felt like God wanted to talk to me. And as I read it, my heart was moved and God was saying, yes, I want you to be with me because my mom had planted that seed. Then when I was a teenager, I got to be involved in a ministry called Mission Arlington that was started by a woman named Tilly Bergen. She was on the school board in Arlington, Texas. Uh, she was 
minister of missions at First Baptist Church of Arlington. And then she began to feel God tugging on her heart. Her and her husband, Bob, had been missionaries in Korea for many years. And she was wrestling with the question, if we can do missions in Korea, why aren't we really doing missions in Arlington where we live? I'm the minister of missions, but we're not living like missionaries in our own city. And she prayed about that question for seven years. And then compelled by the Holy Spirit, as an overflow of her life with Jesus, she just started a bunch of apartment Bible studies and caring for a bunch of people in low-income communities around Arlington. And it, uh, it spread like fire. And now tens of thousands of people have come to know Christ through this ministry that became known as Mission Arlington. And I got involved with that, and it totally reshaped how I thought about Christian ministry. But what was the deepest transformative part was just being around Tilly Bergen, I don't know how to describe it except for like Baptist Mother Teresa, okay? She just radiated the presence of Christ. When I was around her, everybody she loved, I felt like this is what it would have been like to be around Jesus. A quiet authority and love. And then I married my wife, Candace. And she has a deep, personal, quiet communion with God. And now for 17 years... Uh, through her compassion towards me and her, she's a person of truth and integrity, but it comes out with uh, gentleness and patience. And she's taught me a lot about being with Jesus. And then a couple days ago, I was at a press conference, and Sister Helen Prejean was there, who is a famous nun and social activist. And she came and showed up and she was talking about uh, social activism stuff like she does. And I'm not going to talk about all that because I'm not trying to distract us today. OK, uh, but here's what struck me about Sister Helen Prejean, a great biblical justice advocate and hero throughout her life. But as I was in a little room with her, I was agreeing with her. But there was other people in that setting who were loudly disagreeing with her. Saying things contradictory to her whole life work. People who evidently hadn't thought it through very well. And they were being, they were just behaving in a certain way that evoked a certain response from me. I'll just put it like that. And what struck me more than anything was Sister Helen Prejean. This, she's been a nun for, she's in her 80s, who for decades has been living a life of secret prayer and then going and caring for the most vulnerable. Here's what struck me. In that space... All the people who were most loudly disagreeing with her, some of them in the name of God, she laughed with them, she joked with them. As soon as things, the little contentious parts were over, she ran up and hugged them. She was radiating with grace for them. And what she kept saying is, Jesus comes near, we're we're all just broken people, and Jesus comes near to all of us with his love. And I just thought, that's what it's like when you spend your whole life with Jesus. With Jesus. Our text of scripture today offers us a very simple invitation. Come be with Jesus. Come be with Jesus. That's the whole point of life. It's an adventure. Sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's painful. As far as setting expectations on the front end, you should expect to be bad at it. Okay, don't expect to be good at it. But every time you're bad at it, Jesus is going to still be there, gracious and loving. You're used to people bailing out on you when you fail, but Jesus won't do it. When you're not good at following him, he's just going to keep loving you. 
And as you just focus on life with him, he will transform you and you will become a fisher of men. His life and his love are going to flow through you to bring hope and healing to the world. We're about to respond to this text of scripture by singing a song of worship, but I want to just give you a quiet moment right now. First, worship band, you do not have to come up right now. We won't do that transition thing that we sometimes do while we're praying. I just want to be still and quiet in the presence of God. I just want to give you a moment to reflect on the, the reality that Jesus is here right now. He sees all the best stuff and the worst stuff inside of you. You don't have to hide from him. He sees all the best and worst stuff about your past. And, get this, he sees all the best stuff and the worst stuff about your future. And he loves you and he wants you to be with him. He would literally go from heaven to earth to hell to be with you. He already did it once. I just want you to thank him for that, praise him for that, and then maybe ask them, ask him if there's anything he's wanting to say to you about this calling of life with him. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence with us today. Our Lord, the deep desire of my heart is to live every moment of my life in fellowship with you. I long for it for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. I know some of us have felt during this sermon a tug on our hearts as you're comforting us and encouraging us and calling us deeper into your presence and into your kingdom. There may be others in here who their initial reaction was more like My reaction that day 30 years ago when my mom was trying to talk to me about life with Jesus. But I pray that you would do for those what you did for me, which is that your Holy Spirit would carry to completion the work that you have begun. That throughout life and throughout eternity, we would be people who are with Jesus. And that our with Jesus lives... would transform us so that other people would encounter a radical healing love within us that would draw them to you as well. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.